Thanks again for coming by the Freed Thinker podcast. As always, I'm your host, Tyler Vela. On this episode, I'm going to go through a brief article that I wrote recently dealing with uh, libertarian free will and what I think is uh, why, what, what I think are some of the, big, the biggest problems with it, why I think such a position is so fragile to hold to. Uh, if, if you like this content or any other content, please uh, consider becoming a sponsor. You can click on the Become a Sponsor link on the blog, or you could follow us on Patreon. Uh, feel free to give any amount. You can become a regular subscriber or a one-time uh, gift. That would be, always be helpful and, and, and greatly appreciated for us here. So with that, I want to dive right in and start talking about some of the reasons why I think that libertarian incompatibilism uh, is is a rather fragile position. Uh, Previously, I've done an episode dealing with what I think is a warranted case, uh, biblical case for compatibilism. That is why we see compatibilism existing in, in the Bible itself. That is that uh, it is it, God's determination that, that God has predestined all things, that determinism is true, and that that is compatible with human freedom and moral responsibility. And we see both of those things happening in the scripture with regard to the same events. So the weaknesses of libertarian incompatibilism are actually pretty manifold. There's there's so many defeaters for it that, and, and I've gone through a bunch of those on this show, on, on various episodes dealing with Molinism and other uh, issues in and around uh, the debates around determinism and free will. But there's so many defeaters that it's kind of hard for me to imagine how anyone can affirm it with this kind of absolute dogmatic certainty that if you deny libertarian freedom well you're just denying freedom and you're just saying we're all robots and, and all that kind of and all that kind of thing uh, such that anyone who disagrees with them just isn't just isn't holding to any type uh, of meaningful sense of free will so even if one believes that libertarian freedom is true i think that they should at least hold it with a good amount of intellectual humility and understanding of why the vast majority of philosophers and theologians over the millennia have actually denied it in favor of some manner of compatibilism. And some out there, uh, like my friend Braxton Hunter uh, and others, will say things like, oh, well, I think that libertarian freedom just is kind of our our intuitive understanding of how of how freedom works. Um, and 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 Many people have shown that that just is not the case. There are there are numerous studies uh, and meta-analytical studies that have shown that folk understanding, kind of the intuitive understanding of freedom, is really a mixed bag. It, it can it can sometimes look like incompatibilism, but the same person in a different situation can also completely have a deterministic and compatibilistic understanding of freedom. They can sometimes have a categorical understanding, sometimes a conditional understanding, and a lot of times. The examples given to try to show why our intuitions uh, are, are leaning towards libertarian freedom 
often are just that as long as I'm not coerced or something isn't against my will, then I'm free. But that really is the conditional sense that follows under compatibilism. So some of these arguments that say, oh, well, we, we can affirm libertarian freedom just as the intuitive position just collapse. But beyond that, Part of the problem with libertarian freedom, uh, libertarian incompatibilistic views, is that it's a position that rests on two firm principled positions such that they claim that if something like X obtains, then Y is necessarily false. That is, they claim that if God has determined something, then it cannot, in principle, be a free act sufficient for moral responsibility. And that if God has determined something that is immoral or evil, then God is in principle uh, blameworthy for that evil. That is that he somehow, he somehow illegitimately causes that evil action. That This is where you get something like he's the author of sin or so on and so forth. The reason that this makes the position so fragile is that if one can present even a single exception to either of those principles, then the entire view is falsified. That is, the libertarian incompatibilist view is a principled position that says that any form of determinism and any meaningful sense of, of, more, uh, of freedom uh, and moral responsibility are in principle contradictory. So that if we can show one example where something is determined and free or determined and we are morally responsible, then that that principled position of that, that undermines libertarian incompatibilism is falsified and the view is therefore falsified. So it's really a fragile position that simply giving one exception to its principled stances falsify the entire view. Okay, here numerous examples have uh, can and have actually been given to that effect. That is, they there have been exception to these principles given. It's one reason why most just don't affirm the view. But let me give you only one example from the Bible that is an exception to both principled positions. So uh, this one example, uh, I'm going to argue, uh, undermines both of those principles that that um, if something is determined, it can't be. Uh, sufficiently free and, and therefore not morally responsible, and that if God has determined something that is evil, then God is in principle uh, immoral or evil for, for determining and bringing about that thing. There's one example that undermines both of those. I only need it to be successful for one, for libertarian incompatibilism to be falsified. Here, uh, I think I can demonstrate that it undermines both. So in Acts 2, 22 to 23, we read in a sermon by Peter, Quote, men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. End quote. In this passage, we observe two facts. First, the crucifixion of Jesus was something that was brought about by God's determinative plan and foreknowledge. And second, God's determining plan was to have the incarnate second person of the Trinity, the Son, executed as an act of state-sponsored deicide. 
And that is, that's the most evil act in human history to which the responsible agents, that is the Jewish leaders, Pilate, Judas, the soldiers who tortured him and so on, were actually morally responsible. They're called wicked for their actions. And thus, if they're morally responsible, they are sufficiently free in their actions such that they are responsible for their actions. So those are the two facts uh, that we observe. And these two facts serve to falsify the two principles uh, above. Firstly, the crucifixion came about te horistamenen bole kai proge progen ose tu theu. Sorry, I don't always often read the Greek when I translate it. Not the best of reading it. This phrase simply means, that, that is the phrase uh, that it is uh, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. That phrase is interesting for several reasons. Firstly, many translations su will supply the prefix pre to determinative or determined. The NASB does this. So it's by the predetermined plan of God. Now, that's not a bad translation as it gets to what is likely meant by Peter in his sermon, considering it's connected to God's foreknowledge. However, to avoid the charge, however unwarranted, because again, I think that actually is a good translation. Uh, the, the, so to avoid that charge, that, that unwarranted charge, that using a dynamic equivalent meaning of the horesmene, uh, uh, I'm simply going to translate this as ordained or determinate rather than preordained or predeterminate because that's not uh, technically part of the lexology of the word behind it. This is the same word that's used uh, in Luke 22, 20, verse 22, when Jesus says, For indeed the Son of Man is going uh, as it has been determined, but woe to the man by whom he is betrayed. Here, Jesus uses a perfect tense participle, something that has already been completed in the past. That is, it has already been determined, past complete. The idea conveyed here is clearly that there is not only something that is known by God from the past, but something that God has ordained or determined will happen in the past. That is, that is the ordination or the determination is in the past about what will happen. Right? Um, so it's not that the thing itself has already happened in the past. It's that uh, God's ordin ordination of it, his ordaining of it, his determining of it happened completely and perfectly, perfect tense, in the past. Uh, and so it, is, it, is, it has been determined that, God, that, that Jesus uh, is, is going to be handed over uh, and be crucified. Okay. It's also the same word that Paul uses in his sermon in Acts 17.30 when he says uh, the same thing when he writes, where he says, quote, So having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now proclaiming to mankind that all people everywhere are to repent because he has set a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all people by raising him from the dead, end quote. It's not merely that God knows in the abstract that Jesus would come and die. It's that, the, that Jesus has been appointed. He had been appointed in the past. It had been determined that Jesus would die. That's what, that's what God had appointed. He had determined. He had ordained to happen. God directly planned that. He decreed and intended it to happen. 
It's not something passive on God's part where he just kind of sees it but has nothing to do about it. No, he ordains it. Uh, Paul echoes this in Romans 1.4 when speaking of Jesus. He writes, quote, who was, and we're going to talk about this translation, who was declared the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, end quote. The same, uh, the same use, by the way, uh, relating to Jesus being ordained by God is present in Acts 10.42. So that is that, that, that the ordaining is actually in, in the NSB, it's translated as a declaration, even though it's the same verb. So in other ones, has appointed, has ordained, has determined. Here is he has declared. Here we start to see the overlap between God's active decrees his declarations, and his determination of something to come to be or something that will be. This is rooted in the notion that a sovereign like God actually creates reality by declaring something to be the case. This is epitomized in the creation account of Genesis 1 where God speaks creation into existence. Uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 2 when it talks about how God spoke and the light leapt into existence. When God declares, let you know, let there be light or let the, you know, the earth bring forth uh, vegetation, whatever, let X be. It's not a simple description of what will happen or even more weakly that may happen. Rather, it is the ordaining, the determining, the sovereign decree of something to happen. The same term is also used in numbers uh, in the in the Septuagint, numbers thirty four six uh, and Joshua thirteen twenty seven of establishing uh, of boundaries of nations or certain territories. Here they didn't merely know about the boundaries, but rather to aridzo, that's the root word, just meant to decree, to establish, to ordain, to bring about, to create the boundaries and thus to actually mark out what will and will not be part of that land or that property or that territory, right? So it's it's not, so to aridzo in, in, in Numbers and in Joshua, when they're, when, they're, when they're using aridzo to decree or establish or ordain the boundaries of the land, it's not just that, oh, well, we know the boundaries that are already there. No, it's to set in place by the decree the boundaries that will be in place. This use of the term to establish or ordain the boundaries of nations and even when and how and long how long they would exist for is also used in Acts 17:26 uh, during Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. We see something similar in Acts 11:29 where aridzo is used to describe the disciples determining to set aside a certain amount of money as relief for those in need. They didn't just let the chips fall where they may, so to speak, and say, oh, well, we know how much money will, you know, is there. But rather, they determined the definite amount that they would give. The aridzo just is the determinative act that they determined how much they would set aside for the needy. So what we see in Peter's statement in Acts 2.23 is that the cross was brought about, quote, by the determinate or the determinative plan of God, end quote. That is, the plan of God is what established and determined it. It brought it to be as, uh, as if it was a creative decree. 
It was not only by God's foreknowledge, which creates problems for our open theist friends, considering it requires the free actions of those agents involved and God knows them <laughs> in advance, uh, but it, it is precisely because of God's determinative decree in the past prior to the events that the crucifixion occurs, right? So God predetermines, that's again why the, the most translators put it as, as the predeterminate or the preordained plan. They don't just use ordained or determinate, even though that is technically the root. Uh, the, the, the way the tenses work, it actually is probably the more meaningful translation to say predetermined or preordained. But again, uh, the, 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 it just is by... Um, that, that it demonstrates the fact that the crucifixion was brought about by God's determinative plan, his predeterminative plan. However, we see that Peter places the blame of the crucifixion squarely on the Jews he was addressing when he declares, but you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Right? So here we have God determining, decreeing by his determinative plan what will happen, but it's also by, by, by the decisions, by the actions. The, 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 this is why compatibilism is not fatalism, because their free choices, their actions, their decisions matter to the outcome, and they are culpable for it. You nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men put them together. Notice that Peter on the one hand can say that the crucifixion is by the determinative plan of God and yet also tell them, but you nailed him to the cross. God determined the action, but the people were freely and thus morally responsible agents. They were called godless men because of it. They're called wicked. The action over and over is called a wicked action, right? The, this first fact then dispute, uh, disproves the first principled stance of the libertarian incompatibilists and thus uh, is enough to falsify the entire view. Remember, if, if libertarian, libertarian incompatibilism is built on these principled positions, that they are th those principled positions are necessary to the view, simply providing one exception falsifies the view. So remember that's that, that, that this, that this, if I can provide one ex exception, if this exception is valid, which I think that it is, it, it, it is an exception that disproves the rule and thus brings down the entire house of cards, so to speak. Okay, secondly, by implication, we see that the thing that God's determinate plan brought about was deicide. It was the state-sponsored murder of the only unfallen and truly innocent person ever to walk the earth. This is the this is by most accounts the most evil thing to have ever happened in human history. Libertarian incompatibilists would often will often try to use emotive reasoning to persuade people of their position. They'll say things like, "Oh, so, so you determinists, you you mean that God determined the rape and torture of the small girls that that are that are used and abused in sex trafficking?" Okay, that rhetorical point here should not be missed. They want to cause an emotional, not a rational response. That's not always a bad thing. It's, it's okay to have emotional responses to these things. But here, we think of something so horrific as child sex trafficking, a truly evil and disgusting practice, 
And the libertarian incompatibilist then wants you to make the unwarranted leap to the conclusion that therefore God could not have possibly determined something evil to happen. This attempt to force us into a non sequitur is powerful precisely because our emotional response to such evils is very deep and extremely visceral. The pro- and, and rightly so, by the way, our response to something that, that horrendous should be very deep and very visceral. It is a disgusting evil action. The problem, however, is that such an appeal highlights that we often don't think of the horror of the crucifixion enough. Rather than wonder how God could determine human trafficking, it highlights that we're not equally appalled that God could determine deicide, the the state-sponsored murder of his own son, the second person of the Trinity, the God-man, the truly innocent second Adam sent to save humanity. However, uh, so, so it shows that that emotional appeal Right? If the emotion works on the human trafficking, it should work more so when I say, oh, but God determined the crucifixion, the deicide of the son. Right? If you don't have the same visceral response to that, and yet the text clearly tells us that that was by God's determinative plan, right? the problem is, is actually uh, more so that we have a more emotional, visceral response to the one, the human trafficking response that we don't have to, to the crucifixion of Christ, where we actually should have that more deeply. We should have a stronger visceral reaction, reaction to the crucifixion of Christ, and yet it is, it is, we are told that it is brought about by God's determinative plan and foreknowledge. However, for this fact to go through, the second fact, one actually need not agree with me that the crucifixion was the superlative evil of all human history, though that should make this point even more poignant. In fact, for this, uh, for this second fact to go through and falsify uh, the principled stance of libertarian incompatibilism, one only need to think that it is an evil act. Right? For the second fact to go through and to falsify, I just need, for the sake of the argument, I just need the crucifixion to be a an evil act, a sinful thing. Here we have an act that God has determined to be, to exist. It is by his definite uh, plan that the crucifixion happens, his, his determinative plan where he has ordained it to happen. And yet we know that it's an evil act. So we know that Peter does not blame God, but rather blames the agents who handed Jesus over and those who went through with the crucifixion. They are the guilty ones. So we see that God can determine, ordain, decree something evil to be brought about by the free choices of his creatures and yet not be blameworthy for them. In fact, the the New Testament commonly glorifies God for the crucifixion. So it may even be the case that in a manner in which God does decree and determine evil things to happen, far from bringing blame to God, may in fact bring glory to God for his righteousness, his justice, and his plan of salvation. As Paul says in Romans 9, speaking of the objects of mercy the objects of wrath that he tells us God himself has fashioned, Paul says, quote, What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with great patience objects of wrath 
prepared beforehand for destruction, right? And, and he goes on. There's actually I, I left something I left something off that, so I'm gonna I'm gonna bring it up here really fast. Uh, he he actually goes on from there, um, and he says, uh, and he did so. Right. So in verse 23, and he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon uh, the objects of mercy, which he prepared uh, beforehand for glory. Right. That is that that God actually determined he created with great he endured with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction. These are these are the, the ones that are from the same lump of clay as the objects which he made for mercy. Why did he do that? Why did he determine that they would their nature would be objects of wrath? That's Ephesians 2. Well, he did so to make known the riches of his glory upon objects of mercy, which he prepared for beforehand for glory. That is, God can determine the sinful and fallen nature of the objects of wrath which are prepared for destruction and receive glory for that. Right? He can display the riches of his, uh, of his glory upon the objects of his mercy, which he prepared beforehand for mercy. Right? So therefore, we can see from one single scriptural example that libertarian incompatibilism is not only implausible, but is definitively falsified due to the fragility of the core principled stances on which it takes uh, that, that, that are just undermined by the two facts of, of this one passage. All right, well, thank you again so much for joining. As always, if you have any questions, concerns, comments, uh, commendations, or condemnations, please feel free to reach out. You can email freethinkerpodcast at gmail.com. You can comment, visit the blog at freethinkerpodcast.blogspot.com or head on over to the group page where you can find the Freethinker on Facebook. Thank you again for joining. Good night.